family church, uh, church abroad, so to speak. I'm uh, incredibly thankful that you are here with us this morning, incredibly thankful to cap off at least this portion of our services. Uh, one of the things I think is just incredible is when God uses several churches to come together for his glory. And I think it's just amazing that we can put aside tiny differences like where we meet in worship and come together in worship. And, and in this, I think there is a great, great message. A great, great message that God's love and God's mercy towards us, as I often say, are new every single morning, but even more than that. That God's mercy and love brings us to a place where we are steadily and firmly and consistently held tightly in God's hands. And so as we begin this morning, I would love to lead us in a prayer, but I want to challenge you to do something with me. I want us to posture ourselves before God. So I'm going to give physical commands, something like hold your hands out open wide. And I want you to follow along with me as I pray. And whatever I say, I just want you to follow along. And if you have to look up and look at what I'm doing, that's fine too. God knows your heart. Doesn't matter that you're looking at me while I'm praying. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercies that are new every single morning. Lord, as we open our hands wide before you, Lord, we are ready to receive whatever you have for us. Lord, we are ready to hear whatever you have for us. Your servants are listening this morning. God, as we tighten our hands uh, and make a fist and, and dig the fingertips into the palms of our hands, Lord, I'm reminded of the nails that pierced your hands. I'm reminded of your love for us that you did not, you did not go to the cross in a gloomy manner, but you joyously went before the cross for us. Lord, I'm reminded of how our salvation is not dependent on us, but we are held tightly in your hands, just as my hands are tight now. And Father, as we open our hands back up and feel the fresh air start to hit our palms, Lord, I'm reminded of the breath that you breathed into me, that you gave me life. As, as Brother Tom mentioned last night, that, that at the bottom of the river, you dove in and you breathed life into my lungs. Lord, help us not take this for granted and help us love you with all that we are. And Father, whatever you have to do, whatever you have to say, please, Lord, please have your way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be reading through the entirety of 1 John chapter 4. Uh, and I didn't write this down on the little notes I handed out to you, but we're also going to go a little bit into chapter 5 because the more I thought about it, I just thought we just can't stop there. First John chapter four is a beautiful, beautiful passage. You're probably familiar with it because of a couple key verses, such as we love him because he first loved us. And today I have the privilege of sharing with you the assurance and hope of the gospel. The assurance and hope of the gospel. What does this word assurance mean? Well, there's 
several ways that we could interpret that. But here's how I understood it. That nothing can pluck me from the hand of God. We sang this song in Christ Alone last night, one of my favorite modern hymns. And it says, uh, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hands. And I just thought, yep, that's what I'm preaching on tomorrow. It's a beautiful passage. Here we are, First John chapter 4, verses 1 through 21, a little bit into chapter 5. Uh, we're going to read through it in its entirety, and then we're going to go back and dissect the passage a little bit. Verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now, it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have seen this, we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Here we are, chapter five, verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I just pray, God, that you will speak boldly to our hearts, um, to me first and then to this congregation. And God, I just pray um, that you would move me out of the way, all of my arrogance, all of my sinfulness, all of my wretchedness. Lord, I know one thing for sure, that when your word is spoken, you speak. And so, God, would you just help us hear you? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we're talking about the assurance or hope of the gospel. We're talking about the sustainability, so to speak, of the gospel. How can we know that once we have been saved, we are still saved? Or how can we know that once we have placed our faith in Christ, there's salvation for us? First John chapter four and into first John chapter five talks all about this. I hope you heard it. I also had notes handed out for you. Uh, these are just to help you follow along. These quotes are taken directly from the scriptures out of context. Sure. But I hope to give you the context as we go through it. So here's point number one today. If you're following along, I hope you are. Point number one is this is how you know the spirit of God. This is how you know the spirit of God. Well, how do we know the spirit of God? Let's look back at verse one. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's, That's a sobering opener to this chapter. That there are false teachers and there are false spirits and there are false teachings that have gone out throughout the world. Now, we have a huge blessing living in 2023 that we get to look back at the various heresies or false teachings that have come up. And we get to go, oh, someone already addressed this. We know the proper response to this. But here in the early church, I mean, what a catastrophe it is for there to be false teachings that have popped up already. It's one of the reasons why Jesus was so concerned with teaching things himself and then making sure that his direct followers taught things. Verse two, this is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So there it is. As you are listening to teachings, as you are listening to pastors, if they confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, these teachers are from God. These are good teachings. These are good teachers. Verse three, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now is already in the world. Let's talk about this term Antichrist for a moment. When I was growing up, I was taught that Antichrist was one being, one, uh, you know, sixth sense, omen, the nun type being who was going to make my life miserable in the end times. But as I've developed more biblical understanding, I've learned that to be antichrist is more of an attitude or spirit as opposed to a being. Here's what I mean by this. Uh, I believe, and, and again, this is me inserting my opinion just a little bit. I believe that those who claim to be Christians but do not love others as Christ loved them are of the antichrist. They are opposing God's message. What does it mean to be antichrist? It means to be opposite of God, opposite of Jesus specifically. So antichrists are those who teach certain things. For example, uh, that Jesus is not the savior of the world. That would be an antichrist spirit. 
that Jesus never came to earth, that Jesus isn't real. That's an antichrist spirit. That Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are not one is an antichrist spirit. When we deny the godhood or divinity of Jesus Christ, we have an antichrist spirit. And here in this letter in 1 John, we see a significant target toward this spirit, that this is not from God. Whoever's teaching these false teachings, they're not one of us. So how do you know the spirit of God? Well, uh, it's whoever confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Verse four. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. In my life, I accepted Christ at the ripe age of 14 years old. I had experienced the first tragedy in my life. Someone very close to me had passed away and my life was shattered to pieces. And in that moment, uh, believe it or not, God's Holy Spirit intervened and a postcard hit me square in the forehead. And this postcard was from a youth pastor at a youth group I had visited a handful of times just to eat fried chicken and play video games. And this postcard said simply this, Brandon, if you ever need anything, please give me a call. And it had his phone number. It was the youth pastor there. So his name's Greg. I ended up calling Greg, and I called Greg, and I'm sobbing over the phone, and I'm saying, Greg, I don't know what to do. I don't feel like living anymore. My life has just gone to pieces. What am I supposed to do without uh, this this loved one in my life? And he says, do you have time to meet me at the church? I'm at the church right now. I said, sure. So I run over to my mom, and my mom could tell I'm in distress. And um, she says, sure, honey, whatever you need. And so we go to the church, and as I'm sitting across from him, he's sitting at his desk, I'm, I'm venting to him, casting all my cares on Greg. And Greg says, Brandon, there's nothing I can do. And if you know me, if you've known me for any amount of time at all, you've known I'm a, I'm a bit blunt, I'm a bit forward. I try to let my speech always be seasoned with grace, but I don't typically hold back what I'm thinking, for better or worse. And in that moment, I said, what? Why am I here? Because my expectation was I was going to sit across the desk from Greg and he was going to enlighten me with something that would remove this burden of life from my shoulders. And he couldn't. And I'll tell you how I know that what Greg told me next is from God. Because he talked all about Jesus removing my burdens, not him removing my burdens. It was one of the greatest lessons God ever taught me in that moment. One, the the good news that God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But not only that, that he was raised on the third day and lives forevermore. And that we who trust in him will live a life of abundance forevermore with him. He talked all about Jesus and he led me to Christ that night. And, and I remember as I prayed that, that God took the stress off my shoulders. 
I, I could feel myself loosen up. I could feel the tightness removed. No, has life been easy? No, not at all. Wish it has. It hasn't though. But in that moment, I had a choice to decide, am I going to believe a spirit of truth or spirit of deception? Here's the spirit of truth, that Jesus Christ is the only one who can take away my sins and the only one who can take away my burdens and the only one who can give me life. The spirit of deception in that moment was that some man would be able to give me enough encouragement to help me move on in life. And in that moment, thank God for his obedience, Greg led me to Christ and not to himself. Verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Pause. That's the gospel. There it is. If you've ever wanted to read the gospel in the text, boom, there it is. That's the gospel. God's love is revealed in this way. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Another word for that is propitiation. That was mentioned earlier in this conference. It's this idea that it is the, the perfect, sufficient sacrifice. You know, a lot of times when we talk about God's love, um, it, it's wildly taken out of context to mean that we're supposed to be condoning of everything and approving of everything and never show any sort of harshness toward anything. That's not what love is. In fact, what we see is that God's love was revealed in him sending his son to die for us. God, I tell you, one of the harshest things in all of humanity was God laying the wrath that we deserve on his only begotten son. It was one of the harshest things to ever happen in humanity. And even though it was the darkest moment in humanity, it was also the brightest moment as we reflect back on it. That God loved us in this way, that the, the wrath we deserve, the justice we deserve, God did not give it to us. I've heard it said this way. If there was a judge uh, and there is a, a murderer standing before the judge and um, the, the, the case has been said, everything's been said, uh, there's no doubt in anyone's mind, he's even pleading guilty knowing that that everything is going to go wrong and he's going to be sentenced to life. In fact, he's going to be sentenced to the, the death sentence. And the judge stands up there and says, not guilty, you're free to go. I'll just tell you right now, if that happened in Glenville, people would riot. If that happened in Glenville, there'd be protests everywhere. People would say, how in the world could you let someone so guilty go? How in the world? Could you let someone who has said that they are guilty? How can you declare them innocent? Friends, might I just suggest to you that this is exactly what God does with us. That we, in our, in our moment, Romans 5 says this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were actively sinning, Christ died for us. 
while they were mocking him and ridiculing him, Christ died for us. And yet God declares us innocent, guiltless, and free. Might I suggest it's not justice that upsets us. In fact, if God were to punish us for our sins, I think we would all go, yeah, that's fair. That, that is what we deserve. I am guilty. We all have this moment when we come to Christ where we say, God, I am sinful before you. Please forgive me. That That is part of that salvation process, that salvific process. And here we are standing before the judge saying, God, I am guilty. And he declares us innocent. It is madness. It's absurd. It makes no sense. And this is the gospel in its entirety. That those who are completely guilty before the ultimate judge are declared innocent because of the sacrifice of the son. Verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. I think there's a a really tough thing for all of us to process. I know it's challenging for me to process. A lot of times it's easy to love God, but it's hard to love those that God has created. It's true. Uh, As a pastor, I've had uh, many circumstances already where people have just said things to me where I just thought, what in the world are you talking about? Not at this church, obviously, for my church members who are here. But I just say, what in the world are you talking about? Why would you treat me that way? Why would you be so unkind to me? Why would you be an enemy of me? Don't you understand that I am preaching this message to you of good news? Don't you understand that I I so deeply desire life and sufficiency for your soul, and yet you are coming against me? And yet these are the exact people that God has declared us to love And we love God by loving people. Why? Because God loves those people enough to send his son to die for them. We we love God by doing this. We love God by loving others. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. Here's point number two today. Everyone who loves has been born of God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. So as we are continuing here, let's just set set the stage a little bit. How do we know the Spirit of God? How do we know that we are saved and that our salvation, that the gospel has penetrated our hearts and that we are continually saved? Well, we, we listen to the spirit of truth, right? We, we understand good, true teachers, but we also love. Everyone who loves has been born of God. If you do not love other people, you probably don't love God the way you think you do. If you have people in your life that you have said, now, don't get me wrong, okay? I, I shared this story in church a couple months ago. I had a Spanish teacher in high school, Mrs. Hape. We all called her Mrs. Hate. Um, very, very tiny woman. She would always tell me I was wrong when I answered questions. 
And then whoever answered after me would say the same exact thing as me. And she would go, see, see, yes, 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 that's correct. And it would drive me crazy. And it got to the point where my classmates noticed this and observed this. So me being the, the great student I am, I would always raise my hand first and try to answer. And she would all, I mean, never once the entire year would she say, correct, Senor Newell, never. But whoever spoke after me, they would make it a point to say exactly what I said, same exact pronunciation, everything. And she would always say yes. And there were times where I knew I was wrong and they were wrong and she would still say yes. It's like she had some sort of vendetta out for me. And so one day I'm, I'm sharing in youth group about Mrs. Hate. And I'm just, just bickering and bickering and bickering. And this young lady in the youth group, middle school girl, keep in mind, I'm uh, 15 or 16 years old. And now this 12 year old girl's saying something to me. And she goes, um, Brandon, that seems pretty hateful. Well, mind your business, Sally, right? That's that. Don't talk to me about hateful. You haven't even had Mrs. Hate's class yet. You don't know what I'm talking. And then in that moment, the Holy Spirit convicted me. She was right. I was using all the energy and all the effort and all of my creativity to come up with names like Mrs. Hate. Instead of using all of my giftings and energy and breath to praise the Christ. I want to be careful how I say this, but I also want to be genuine. This is my first time living in a small, small town. I lived in a town twice as big as this. I thought it was a small town. This is a pretty small town. The amount of gossip and bickering and slander that happens in a town like this is so disheartening. And and when I moved here, uh, again, let me just be really honest with you. I told you I'm blunt for better or worse. When I moved here, my wife and I were trying to find a place to live. And so I would ask questions to, to people and I would say, oh, what about this neighborhood? What do you think about this neighborhood? And here's really what I was asking, even though I didn't communicate it well. What I was asking was like, okay, school's pretty close to this. Is there a lot of crime that happens here? Um, how Are the neighbors friendly? Here's what I got told. Um, no, you don't want to live there. Black people live there. Yikes. No, you don't want to live there. A bunch of Hispanics live there. Yikes. I told you I'd be honest about it. Might I suggest that that is hateful? I, I don't care what the people like there behave as. When we decree an entire race as unworthy of living by, yikes, that's hateful. And I would say that if that is our mindset and that is our attitude, and it, it could be aside from race, right? It could be how people behave. It could be like someone from the Presbyterian church. It, it could be anything. If, if we have this mindset that people from other churches or races or ways of living are worthy of hate, then we don't love God. And the gospel has not penetrated, as Brother Tom said, the gospel has not penetrated this stony heart just yet. Now listen, salvation and sanctification are two different things. Salvation at the moment we accept Christ, 
we are made righteous in right standing and good standing with God the Father. Sanctification, we are being made more and more into the image of God's Son, Jesus. We are all in different stages of this process. But if you are still at a stage where you are hating others, you need to repent and turn from your sins and become more like God's son. Because Jesus did this. Uh, do you know that a lot of Jews hated the Samaritans? It's true. There was a lot of racism even back in that day. And a lot of times they would travel around Samaria if they were going somewhere. One of the most amazing things about the story of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman is that he not only was talking to the Samaritan woman, but that he went through Samaria. That he, he wasn't going, oh, I'm going to go out of my way to avoid these people. I'm going to go straight into it. I'm going to go straight into people who already have this predisposition, this prejudice that I'm going to hate them. And instead, I am going to give them life. This is what Jesus does. Everyone who loves has been born of God. And everyone who doesn't love, I think you need to check your heart and see if you truly love God or you just love pretending to be one of God's followers. Verse 13. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. Oh, here we go. Finally, we're at this point of assurance, right? This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. This is point number three today. And no, this doesn't mean we're landing the plane or concluding, but this is point number three today. He has given us his spirit. He has given us his spirit. Let's pause for a moment. How can we know that we are of God? He has given us his Holy Spirit. We don't receive the Holy Spirit by accident. We don't receive the Holy Spirit by some lucky circumstance. We receive the Holy Spirit intentionally by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and God himself, Ephesians would say, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. So here it is, right? This, this message of the assurance of the gospel. How can we be sure that we who are saved will continue to be saved? Because when we trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, God remains in us and we remain in him. Some translations would say abide, which I think is a great word. What does this word abide mean? It means to rest in, to dwell in. It has this idea that you live there. God lives in us and we live in God. Have you ever thought about that? Here's a question I ask myself all the time. Um, would I do half the stuff I do if I, if I could see God standing right next to me? Right? Would I sin in the ways I sin if I could see God looking at me going, you sure you want to do that, Brandon? You sure you want to do that? You sure you want to talk about that Spanish teacher that way? You sure you want to preach a sermon, talk about that Spanish teacher that way, letting people know that you hated people in the past? Verse 16, and we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. 
There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. Uh, Highlight verse 19 there. Underline it. If you don't like drawing in your Bible, get a sticky note later, put it over it or something. We love God because he first loved us. I just shared this this past Sunday with my church. I, I feel compelled to share it with you as well. I think sometimes we get so mixed up in thinking that we have to do something so admirable and desirable and lovable to get God to love us. Uh, this this has been talked about all week. God, I, I have to clean my act up before I come to you. No. Uh, God, I, I have to turn from all my sins before I come to you. No. Do you know that we can't turn from our sin without the Holy Spirit first leading us to righteousness? Uh, to think that we can repent from our sins without God interfering is bold. And I don't mean in a good way. It's arrogant. We need God to intervene in our lives so that we can repent. And I think sometimes we just think, God, I need to stand before you as the perfect Christian. I need to present myself in this way. I need to act this way. If I have thoughts this way, I'm not going to share them with anyone because then they'll know I'm not the perfect Christian. Uh, Do you know that God hears and knows all your thoughts? You know that God hears and knows all the intents of your heart? And some might view that as a scary thing. Oh, God knows me. Do you know how assuring it is? Do you know how restful it is that God knows the deepest parts of me, the darkest parts of me that I share with no one and yet loves me? The fact that God knows who I truly am, not who I present myself as, and loves me. There's this weird dichotomy, uh, especially for ministers, that that we want to be transparent before people, but if we're too transparent, then we lose our credibility as ministers. It's an impossible balance. And so every day we have to beg God, God, would you lead me? God, would you guide me? God, would you help me be a man of integrity? God, would you help me be a man of character? Would you help me be who I present myself as? Not some phony illusion of of what I think a pastor is supposed to look like, but God, would you help me be who you have called me to be, holy and righteous and obedient in your sight? This is how we know we are of God. That there is a desire in us to love others and to love God and to obey God. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does this, uh, the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Uh, let me put it to you this way. I can guarantee you one thing on this earth. I guarantee you a couple things, but one thing as it pertains to this message. You will never meet someone who isn't made in the image of God. You will never meet someone who is not made in the image of God. Yikes. So this means that that Spanish teacher I can't stand is made in the image of God? You bet she is. This means that that family member who has wronged me is made in the image of God? Yes, he is. 
This means that the church member who constantly complains about how long the pastor preaches is made in the image of God. Yes, they are. That doesn't happen in my church. I don't know about you guys. If everyone we meet is made in the image of God, then it means this, right? This is what's implied. That if we hate people who are made in the image of God, then we hate God himself. You might not like it, but it's true. So what are we to do? We are to love them. Uh, I have this thing I do. Uh, I was a student pastor for 10 years, and so I got to minister to a ton of teenagers over the years and um, loved my time doing it. Still minister to teenagers just differently now. And there's something I would do, and they hated it. But I just, I love doing it, and I still do it. And I've encouraged one of our teenagers in our church currently to do this, and she's been doing it, and we've seen the fruit of it. Um, Whenever a teenager would come to me complaining about someone else, whatever the circumstance may be, she stole my boyfriend. He did, you know, whatever. You You hear all sorts of stuff. I would sit them in front of each other, and I would have them pray for each other. And they I don't want to pray. No, no way, no way. And I would say, okay, um, well, you don't have a choice. But two, um, start your prayer off simple, right? Uh, Be genuine in your prayer, right? Like, that's what I care about, that your prayers are genuine. I don't care about how eloquent you sound. Uh, Most people don't pray eloquently, right? Praise God for that. It's the heart that matters. Pray something like, um, you know, I hope Caleb doesn't break his leg today. That's a that's a simple prayer. It's genuine. No matter what hard feelings I might have, I probably don't want someone to have a broken leg. Let's take it to another severity. God, I guess I hope Caleb doesn't die today. It, it starts from a place of... It starts from a place of genuine but uncertainty. You know what I'm saying? Where, where you're praying and you're like, yeah, I mean this, but like, I really don't want to pray for them. And here's what I'm convinced of because I practice it in my life. It is nearly impossible to hate the people you pray for. It's nearly impossible to hate the people you pray for. I cannot pray for you. I cannot go to God on your behalf and, and lift up my voice to him while having hatred in my heart because God's Holy Spirit purifies me and sanctifies me and convicts me. And if I'm praying for you with hatred in my heart, something's got to happen, right? Either I need to get where I'm supposed to be or I'm in the wrong place. Verse 21 and going into chapter five. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. So here it is, as we sort of come to a conclusion of this conference, at least this preaching portion. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Chosen One, the Anointed One, the Messiah, everyone who believes this has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children. Oh, so here we go. Here's the application, right? We just learned 
that those who say they hate their brother or sister and love God are liars. So how do we know that we love God's children? When we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is. To keep his commands and his commands are not a burden. Uh, Let's pause there on verse 3 of chapter 5. Over the years, I've seen many people kind of delve into what I would call legalism. uh, Where they are they are following these rules, but they have no joy while doing it. And I think that's the difference between obedience and legalism is that you are you are doing something because you're like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. And you're doing something because you derive joy in the Lord by being obedient to his commands. And it's a very fine line. The moment where I am obedient to God, but I don't have joy in my obedience to God, I need to pray. And I need to pray that God would soften my heart to enjoy this season of life. Verse four, and then I have a a story I'll share with you and we'll conclude. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that's conquered the world. Our faith. Faith is such an interesting word. It's hard to, it's hard to really put it. I mean, there's been so many definitions over time. Um, So I have a story to describe faith, and hopefully it will help you understand what we're talking about here. Um, I'm currently enrolled in New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I'm about two months away from finishing my Master of Divinity, which praise God for that. Um, But every once in a while during the year, I'll take a weekend intensive course where I'll drive over to New Orleans and I'll sit in a class for 15 hours and do a bunch of papers and stuff and then leave. And so last year, uh, went to New Orleans. I brought a buddy with me, a friend who's also in ministry. Um, and as we're leaving New Orleans, there was a bad storm hitting. No, it wasn't a hurricane or anything like that. Just normal storm. And as we're leaving New Orleans, we're about an hour north of New Orleans on the interstate. I'm going about 70 miles an hour, and it's the middle of the day. I don't see a big puddle that formed in the road. I hit this puddle, and in a moment, before I can even think about it, my car has turned sideways. And so if we're going this way, we're immediately going this way, and I look over, and there's a semi-truck coming, And thankfully, the momentum had carried us off of the highway into the grass, but we're still moving. And at this point, the car is going backwards along a tree line. And so my uh, rear view, not rear view mirror, side window is being just torn apart by these trees. I mean, it is that close to me. All of that lasted about three seconds, maybe. But I want to break down for you what happened in those three seconds. By the way, here we are. We lived. Car ended up spinning back around. We were in the mud. Uh, I threw up from the nerves and probably from shaking around a bunch. But we were okay. We drove home 30 miles an hour the rest of the way. It took forever. That's okay. Uh, I lost a hubcap. I mean, it was a great time. In that moment, here it is. My wife and son 
who at that point was uh, about two months old, are at home. And I'm in the car with my friend who also has a wife and son who's a few months older than my son. And it was the most amazing thing that happened. Because in this moment where I thought I was going to die, and I believe me, I thought I was dying. I was convinced, okay, God, here we are. I prayed something like this. God, please save us. In those three seconds, as, as the car hit the puddle, boom, my steering wheel immediately jerked to the side. As we're seeing the semi, as we're going backwards, I had called out to God and I said, God, please save us. In that same moment, my friend Austin prayed this, God, please save our families. You want to tell me the Holy Spirit wasn't at work there in that moment? That that in this moment where these two men who care deeply about the Lord and deeply about our families are, are seeing our life flash before our eyes. I mean, we had just finished studying a, a book of the Bible for like 20 hours. And here we are heading home, encouraged, tired, but rejuvenated. And, and in that moment, I pray, God, please save us. God, please save our families. Everyone has been prayed for. And in that moment, I didn't go, oh, no, 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 no. I called out, God, please save us. This is faith. I don't say that to boast about myself. I don't say that to make myself seem more holier than now. I'm saying that because at the moment when my life was tested, and believe me, I had confidence in the Lord before then. But when you see your life flash before your eyes, and your only words are calling out to the God you trust in, you know who your faith's in. And so I have this full confidence now. After that moment, after throwing up, after all that, I had full confidence, God, you are my Lord, because I know at the moment of this time when I thought my life was coming to an end, my life was in your hands. And in a moment when my friend thought his life was coming to an end, he knew that our family's lives are in your hands. This is faith. This is how we know the assurance of the gospel. That that God's love for us is not predicated on our obedience to him. God's love for us is not predicated on our righteousness before him. God's love is predicated on one thing and one thing alone, that God loved us first. And our response, as everyone has shared so far in this conference, should be obedience. It should be love. It should be bearing fruit in our lives. But the assurance of the gospel is simply this, that no matter what you do, you cannot make God love you less or more. God loves you completely. The word we might use is perfectly or maturely. It is complete. So let me close with this. If you have had times in your life where you have overcomplicated the gospel. Me too. Rest in this. You are not strong enough to make God love you less. You are not powerful enough to make God love you more. If I can show you this imagery once again, imagine God's hands. You are securely fastened in God's hands. And Satan, your sin, yourself, your pride, none of that can ever pluck you from the hand of God. It's not strong enough. 
Our God is mighty and he is mighty to save. He's not just mighty to save then, he's mighty to save ongoing. That we are constantly being made in the image of the God who loves us dearly, so much so that he sent his son to die for our sins, so that we who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank